right, well, we're in a series called Who is This King? We are leading into Good Friday and Easter, which is just coming up this next week. Uh, last week, we talked about authority, and by we, I really mean me. Uh, that's, a, that's a me we. So I talked about authority last week, that, that he is, our king is our final and complete authority in our life. Today is historically called Palm Sunday. Uh, everybody aware of that, aware of this, that today's Palm Sunday. Today is uh, the day in which we celebrate the beginning of Passion Week. Uh, historically, in Palm Sunday, they call it that because uh, the disciples of Jesus, those who were following Jesus, lined the streets and they used uh, these palm fronds that they would wave at him. And I got clarity uh, or clarified from first service to this that there's a D in palm fronds. Uh, so they, in case you were concerned about that, um, they waved these things. They put their jackets out on the, on the road as a sign of honor, as a symbol of honor. And they shouted praises to Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem to his uh, pending death. Uh, we pick up this story in the Gospels. And uh, if you're not aware of this, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're really kind of these biographies of, Jesus, of the life of Jesus. And there's over, among those books, there's 89 chapters uh, that cover the life of Jesus. And the first 30 years of Jesus, before, like kind of at the point at which he enters into his ministry, the first 30 years of the life of Jesus, there's only four of those chapters that cover that. If you fast forward from the point at which Jesus starts his ministry, uh, for the next three and a half years, there are 85 chapters that cover that portion of his life. And in the last week of the life of Jesus, there are 29 chapters that are devoted to what Jesus wanted everybody to know and understand about after his death and resurrection, what would need to take place, what he wanted the disciples to know and understand. And so we're beginning this point from the point of uh, of the Passion Week, of the triumphal entry into Easter Sunday at the resurrection. So Matthew's whole gospel is kind of this coronation uh, of sorts, this coronation anthem that, that Matthew is presenting in the way that he communicates the life of Jesus. He's really got this one purpose, and that's to declare that Jesus is king. In fact, in starting his gospel, as he does, he's really drawing us in to see that there was this baby in this last Christmas season, uh, the title of the series was Born is the King, uh, really kind of in uh, anticipation of this series, Who is this King? And uh, what we see in Matthew is that he is declaring and showing, that, showing us that there is this baby that would be heir to the throne of David, that he would be the Messiah. And by the end, he has shown that he is not merely the king of the Jews, but that we're being invited into this gospel to join in and to worship the one who's not just the king of the Jews, but who is in fact the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. Matthew reveals to us the true king who stands in contrast to all other kings. In fact, we see this picture in Scripture where there's Jesus as king, but then there's these other 
authorities and rulers uh, that we see that, that were very different than the kind of king that Jesus is. Herod, who desperately wanted to hold on to power. Caesar Augustus, who, who just through his sheer might and influence, uh, ruled the Roman Empire and called himself even a god. And he even called himself a savior of the whole world. He, he called himself the bringer of peace. Now, to achieve the being called the bringer of peace, he had to kill a lot of people. Not exactly peaceful. So who is this king? Who is King Jesus? He's different than any other king. When the Queen of England came and visited the United States, I don't know if, I don't know if you remember hearing about this, but when she came, she brought four tons of luggage. Four tons. Uh, Two outfits for every occasion. And, and listen to this, 40 pints of plasma. Of plasma, like blood, right? Uh, she brought white kid leather toilet seat covers, which I had to look up because I'd never heard of white kid leather. It sounds terrible. It sounds like we're making leather out of children. Uh, it's not apparently what's taking place. Uh, it's, it's like what they would use for gloves, white kid leather gloves. Uh, but she had toilet seats made out of, of, the, of this leather. Uh, she uh, brought her own hairdresser. She brought two valets. And in, in England, they're called valets. I know this because I, I watched that show that everybody else watched called uh, Downton Abbey. So it's a valet. And a host of other attendants. The whole thing cost millions of dollars, millions, just to visit the United States. The king that we're talking about, the king who makes his way into Jerusalem, is a king who is not bringing four tons of luggage. He's a humble king. He's a king who has to flee Herod. He lives in obscurity and in the end, he's a king whose own race conspire to have him killed. He doesn't have a large entourage, although he does have some disciples. No servants. Instead, he tells us that he came to this earth not to be served, but to serve others and to make a ransom for many. This is a king who's not ashamed of people being in his family like you and me. He's a king who's not ashamed or afraid to have sinners be a part of his lineage. This is a king who, if you look at his genealogy in those days, women were not important in genealogies. But this one, this genealogy includes some women. Not obvious ones like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, but, but interesting ones like Tamar who seduced her father-in-law. Ruth who was a refugee or a foreigner. Bathsheba, an adulteress. See, he isn't, this kind of king isn't ashamed of sinners in his family. And we should all appreciate the fact that we get to be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. That in our sin, he accepts us. He loves us. Every day we are reminded that the world needs saving. 
Every time we flip on the news or social media, we are bombarded with the fact that we live in a world that is being destroyed. This world needs saving. This is a king that will save his people from their sins, from the destructive force that is present in us and in the world. His rule is a saving one. To have Christ as our king is to know his saving power in our lives. We also acknowledge that this king loved so passionately the people that he came into contact with. That this king, when he, when he came into, had this divine moment or this divine opportunity, this is a king who doesn't condemn, but a king who extends grace, even culturally when grace was not deserved. This is a king who loves so passionately that he went to a cross as the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. On Friday, we're going to hear the stories of some of these encounters with the king, a king like none other. In John chapter 3, verse 16, uh, quite possibly one of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible. Like even if you haven't been to the church or you, uh, you've not really been all that connected in church, you might be familiar with this verse. It's, it's plastered everywhere. It's used all of the time. But it's a great expression for each of us of God's saving grace and passion for his people. It says, for God so loved the world. And if you ever are reading this or you ever reference back to this, can I just encourage you to underline that word, so. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I, I love you guys uh, I, uh, to the extent at which I know you and to the depths at which I know you. I can say you are my faith community. I love you. I care about you. Uh, but I'm not going to kill my son for you. I'm just not. I mean, I, as much as I do love you, I'm not throwing my son on a cross and sacrificing him for your life. At least that's what I feel in my flesh. I said, I don't know that I could ever do that. Now, I would just as soon die for you as to sacrifice my son for you. But God so loved the world that he sent his son. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He was expressing his great love for us. We call this week that we go into the Passion Week. We hear this word passion associated with uh, this time of year. Uh, it's associated with the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the whole story of the crucifixion. Uh, we talk about the Passion Week and all of the different days that are uh, celebrated in the midst of Passion Week and the reason we associate the word passion with this week is because of what Jesus did on the cross, because of what the Father did in sending his son. He was so passionate about you. He cared about you and loved you so much that he wanted to spend eternity with you, and the only way was for his son to die. 
He was expressing his great love for us, his passion for us. And that kind of passion demands a passionate response. There's an old hymn uh, that we sing during this season of, of the year. I don't, I'm not, I don't think we're going to be singing it this weekend, but it's an old hymn by Isaac Watts. And uh, he, he starts off the song by saying, when I survey the wonderful cross, when I survey the wonderful cross, when I pause long enough, when I take a moment in the busyness of my life and I do a deep dive and think about what's going on in the cross. What is the purpose of the cross? And when I begin focusing my my mind on the cross, this is what I come to the conclusion of. This is what Isaac Watts says. He finishes the line and he says, I come to the conclusion when I deep dive into the cross that it is a love so amazing, a love that's so divine. It demands my soul, my life, my all. That's what passion looks like when we worship our king. That the passion that was extended to the cross deserves a passionate response from us. It demands my soul, it demands my life, it demands everything from me. So as we kick this week off with Passion Week, we go to the story of Jesus getting ready to enter into Jerusalem into his impending death. We survey the wonderful cross, and this is my hope, is that by the time we get done this morning, we are willing to give our all to him. In Luke chapter 19, verse 29, it says, As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, The Lord needs it. And those who who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And they responded, Oh, okay. Now let's just pause for a moment just in our current situation. And let's think about the fact that let's just say you got a brand new car. And it's sitting in your driveway. You haven't even really driven it yet. And... And somebody comes and breaks into your car and starts to hotwire your car. I don't even know if hotwiring is a thing anymore, but let's just say it is. And you're hotwiring your, uh, your car, and you come out, and you're like, hey, why are you hotwiring my car? And they say, well, the Lord needs it. And you say, uh-uh. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, you, in Texas, you get met with a much different greeting than just Okay. But nonetheless, these men show up and it shows the sovereignty of what's taking place here and the miracle working, uh, miracles that are taking place in the midst of this is that they say the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus and they throw their cloaks on the colt and they put Jesus on it. I just like to stop and make an observation there that uh, really has nothing to do with anything theological, but I just think it's funny. I just think it's funny that they had to put Jesus on the colt. Uh, because I have this picture of, of them like, I don't know, are they lifting him up onto, the, onto this coal? I don't know what it looked like or anything. But it used to be that when I was younger, I was thinking, well, he's, he was probably an old man. He put it on. No, he wasn't old. He was 30, 33. 
right? 32 and a half. That's how old I was when I came here. I, I, I could move back then. I would play some basketball. This is before a broken hip, all that. that you know, and I'm thinking, why couldn't Jesus just get on the colt himself? Why didn't he just climb up there? But it tells you how unruly that colt was, that they had to hold the colt, put Jesus on the colt, and here we go. Interestingly, just is actually theological, this story of the colt, the story of, of them coming and Jesus riding in on this colt was prophesied 400 years prior. And what I love about Scripture is that we can look at the prophecies about Jesus and every one of them has come to fruition. So my thought in that is that if the prophecies about Jesus while he was on this earth all came to fruition, couldn't we then assume that all of the prophecies about the return of our Jesus is going to be true as well? Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Luke 19.36-40 now begins the, the triumphal entry. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that they had seen. And one of those miracles was that he was able to ride a donkey. Uh, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Some translations say, Hosanna, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So imagine this street lined with people. These people had not only heard of the miracles that Jesus had done, they had seen the miracles that Jesus performed, and they were convinced that Jesus was their king, that this was going to be the king that was going to free them from the bondage of the Roman Empire, that politically he was going to uh, release them, and they were going to experience this freedom and and they see Jesus riding in on this donkey, and they're like, I would have picked a horse, but it's a donkey, it's okay. And they start waving palm branches, and they throw out their jackets, and, and they're honoring Jesus as king. But there's some Pharisees, there's some religious leaders who are watching all of this take place, and as they're watching this take place, they're uncomfortable with it. They don't like it. And in fact, they... They kind of yell out to Jesus. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke your disciples. I noticed that they didn't call him king. They called him teacher. They acknowledged him as a good teacher, but they certainly were not going to acknowledge him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords, as the Messiah. So they yell out to him, teacher, this isn't how we do things. This isn't how we worship here. Stop it. Tell them to stop it. And they did. There were people, not because of Jesus telling them, in fact, he gives a much different response, but many of the people who were praising his name and giving him glory and honor found themselves just a few days later calling for the crucifixion and execution of Jesus. Jesus' response to these religious leaders is, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The stones will cry out. And you know why? Because even creation can acknowledge its creator. That even in the midst 
of us saying, you know what, I'm not comfortable worshiping this way. I'm not comfortable praising his name in such a way. Our response to that, or Jesus' response to that is, well, if you don't, then all of creation will. And I don't know about you, but I don't really like getting replaced by a rock. There's been times in my life where people have said, well, you're as dumb as a rock. But I, I don't really want to be replaced in my praise by a rock. There's all kinds of things that are coming between our, the worship of our king. And if we aren't careful, what will happen to us in the midst of all of the busyness and all of the distractions and the things that pull us in all different directions, if we're not careful, we can become as fickle as those disciples lining the street where we will come and we will worship his name, but then a few days later forget that he's king. And it's because these people, these disciples, had expectations. They had these expectations of who Jesus was going to be to them. That it really wasn't about Jesus as who he is. It was Jesus as to what he could do for them. And when it became evident that Jesus was not going to save them politically, they turned on him. And I wonder how many times when we have these expectations of Jesus and what we think Jesus should be doing for us, when things don't go that way, where do we go? What does it look like to worship our king with passion? A.W. Tozer says that this, Worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father, which are in heaven. What does it look like to worship the King? We've been talking a lot this year about worship and our worship and entering into worship and and the praises inhabiting his people and I want to just take a moment and as a reminder to us talk about what it means to worship our God our king because the truth is is that we all worship something and uh, I use this phrase a lot that uh, that we and I learned it from those before me that we all worship something we all spend our time our energy, our loyalties, our money, we all we spend those things in certain places. And if you want to know what it is that you worship, you can take a step back and take a, a, an inventory of where you are spending the majority of your time, the majority of your energy, the majority of your loyalty, and the majority of your money. And you will be able to then determine what it is that you worship. Now, I'm not saying that uh, you can't have other things in your life that you spend time and energy and money and, uh, and loyalty on. D- Jesus is okay with that. But what he's not okay with is when those things take precedence over our loyalty to Jesus. It's okay to have money. Money's not bad. It's okay to spend money on Things. It's okay to spend time on things and energy, but when all of those things take precedence over Jesus, then we have essentially replaced our king with someone else or something else. Worship is 
our response to what we value the most. And whatever I worship becomes an obsession. And whatever I become obsessed with, I imitate. And whatever I imitate, I become. We had a, one of the presidents of our denomination of Foursquare, uh, Pastor Jack Hayford, uh, was a worship leader, wrote lots of worship songs. Uh, and one of, uh, one of the things that he said about worship is this. He said, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshiped. Worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshiped. So if we don't like what we are becoming, if we take an inventory of our life, we're like, I don't like who I am right now, then maybe we should take inventory of that which we have placed on the throne of our hearts. Who is our king? Who is your king? I would suggest that the people on Palm Sunday, the people who are lining the street, initially praising his name, have the wrong thing in their heart. If you help me today, Jesus, I will praise you. I will serve you. I will give you honor and glory. But if you're not what I expect, if you don't do things the way that I expect you to do things, then I'm going to do this over here, and I'm going to be done with you. How quickly we fall into the triumphal trap ourselves. Of all the things that Jesus said was important in Scripture, he's talking to the disciples, and one of them uh, comes to him and says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had, this is Mark chapter 12, given them a good answer, he asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And the most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. He's actively looking for people to worship him. Those who will worship him in spirit and in truth with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind, and all of their strength. He's looking for worshipers. How do we worship this king? Number one, God wants us to worship him with our affections. This is one of the greatest passages of Scripture that I struggle with the most. Well, maybe not, probably not the one I struggle with the most, but it's a difficult one for me. Psalm 150, 1 through 6. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. That everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And you say, well, what's the problem with that? those verses. Uh, praise him with timbrel and dancing. It's, I don't like to dance. That's a tough one for me. And when people do dance in the midst of their praise and worship, I, I'm uncomfortable with it. I don't know why. I, it's not their fault. It's not anything that they're doing. It's just, I don't know. It's like, I, I think because I'm insecure about it, then I feel like you should be insecure about that. Just keeping it real here. So when, when I was growing up, 
um, I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor of a local church, and, uh, and so I made the decision to go to church at my dad's church. Um, it would have been awkward and really uncomfortable if I went to a different church when I was growing up. But when I was growing up, uh, I grew up kind of in this transitionary time in, uh, in the American church where uh, we were going from a, a time and a season where you would have in the church building, in the chairs in front of you, you would have uh, what's called a hymnal. And, uh, and, and I remember like Foursquare, our denomination, actually had their own hymnal because everybody else's denomination's hymnals weren't good enough. So we came up with our own hymnal, and, and we had our hymnal, and in it were all of these great hymns and theological songs. And, uh, and so we would have, I remember those. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember them, but I remember seeing them. They were brown. Uh, I remember we could have come up with a little more colorful option there, but uh, they would sit, I don't know if they were in the seat backs or underneath the seats, but they would sit there. And when I, they used to reference them, but as time went by, they, the, we didn't reference them as much. And there was this shift taking place in our worship where uh, we were becoming more contemporary, uh, less organ-driven, uh, and more piano and keyboard-driven and drums. And, and so there was this shift that was taking place in, in the local church. And I think, as you could imagine, that especially with people who don't like change, there were some people who had a problem with that. Um, if, if you've been around the church at all for very long, you know that does not come as a surprise, that anytime we change anything around here, somebody's got a problem with it. And, and so this shift is taking place from a more traditional hymn-based worship into this contemporary loud worship. And now you've got people coming and complaining about this noise that is happening in the church. And how in the world could I ever worship my God with that kind of sound coming from drums and guitars and bass guitars and keyboards? It's just too much. If it sounds like I'm being a little critical about people who complain about how loud it is, it's because I am. <laughs> and I'm not even hiding it. Uh, and the reason why is because typically the people that come and complain about the noise in a church service have no problem going to a sporting event where the decibels are double what they're hearing in the church. So it's not the noise, it's the change, it's the shift. It's the going from something that I know and something that's traditional and that has a place in my heart to something that's different. And I can respect and, and, and really honor the fact of what we once received and loved and have known. I, I don't have a problem with that. But, but let's not discount what maybe is different now into something new that's maybe a little bit of, of a difference and I think maybe one of the greatest arguments for this is this passage of Scripture. Psalm 150. All of the different instruments, all making a joyful noise unto the Lord, that everything that has breath praise the Lord. There's a story that I heard from a pastor, Chris Hodges, in uh, when he was living in North Carolina, that there were these uh, fighter jets that would go by. Uh, he lived close to a base somewhere, and I don't know what kind of base, so don't ask me. But um, when they would go by, they would break the speed of sound. 
or the sound barrier, right? And, and it would make this loud boom. And it was scaring people. Like the people of the, the residents of the community, like they would go by and just without any sort of notice, they'd just be boom. And, and it was freaking people out. People were getting upset about it. And, and so what the, the base decided to do to kind of, you know, calm people down a little bit was they put up a billboard because we know how effective those are. And on the billboard, it said, uh, pardon the noise, it's the sound of freedom. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, in their, in their mindset, it's like, and of course, the residents honored the military personnel and all of that. And so it was just put into perspective. And now if you've been complaining about the sound of the noise, it's like, well, they do provide the freedom that we get to experience. And I just thought maybe that's a sign that, that we have at the beginning of our worship that just says, pardon the noise, it's the sound of freedom. It's the sound of freedom because we praise and we worship him not because of, of singing songs or karaoke. It's the sound of the freedom of what God has done in our life. It's our praises that inhabit the people that praise his name because of the freedom that we get to experience in Christ. Right before the triumphal entry in John chapter 12, it's before Jesus rides the donkey in, he he says, John says, the night before. So this is like Saturday night, right? If it's Sunday, it's Saturday night. Don't, I don't want to get into the details of the chronological stuff. But just for today's sake, today's Sunday, let's think Saturday. Jesus is at Bethany, and he's at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Mary sits at Jesus' feet, and, he, and she breaks this jar of perfume and pours it over Jesus' feet. She takes her hair, she's got this really long hair and she uses her hair and she gets down there and she's washing Jesus' feet with her hair and this perfume. And there's somebody there who just doesn't really appreciate this. His name's Judas Iscariot. Uh, you can already begin to see the bitterness in his heart. He complains about it. He's like, this isn't how this is supposed to be. This is a waste of money. Interestingly, in charge of the money, he says, this is, this is a waste. Why is this woman doing this? And Jesus' response was that she was actually preparing him for burial. And they didn't even understand what that meant. He says, she's preparing me for my burial. And some other translations uh, say, uh, or some other accounts of the gospel say that she is loving this much because she has been forgiven this much. When we sing our praises, when we gather together and we get to praise his name, it's because we have been forgiven much. It's because of the freedom that we get to experience in Christ. The second thing that God wants us to do is to worship him in our attention. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it's in the message paraphrase. It says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God and you'll be changed from the inside out. Where's our attention focused on today? 
See, in my experience, uh, especially in this day and age with uh, phones, with these uh, smartphones, right? You, it's like walking around with a computer. And, and so oftentimes, uh, have you ever been in a restaurant where, uh, where you'll be sitting there and you'll be watching a family and they're sitting at the restaurant at the table there and every one of them has their phones out and they're just scrolling? My family would never do that. Never. Um, and that's not true. Uh, but we try to limit that. We try to catch ourselves in the midst of that. But here's the problem. is like Kelly and I will have this conversation where we'll be saying, uh, you know, either I'll be on the phone or she'll be on the phone. But we need to talk about something pretty important. And, and we'll say to each other pretty respectfully, I think, for the most part, we'll say, hey, whenever you're done doing whatever is so important on Facebook, um, no, that's not what we say. That's, that's condescending and passive-aggressive. It's not us. Um, no, we say, hey, whenever you're done uh, on your phone, can I have your attention because I really need to talk about something. And, and so when they're done, you know, when I'm done, when she's done, then we sit and we, we pay attention. And, and I notice this even with our kids that it's been a busy season in our lives right now, and, and it's, you can begin to kind of recognize where um, my kids don't need me to just provide shelter over their head or food on the table or in the fast food restaurant. Uh, they, what they really need is my attention. And, and that's what good fathers what good children want is attention. God wants our attention. He wants us to worship it with our full attention and devotion, not with distractions, not with things that pull us into five different other directions. He wants a moment of our attention so that he can speak to us. The third thing is that God wants us to worship him with our abilities. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of our praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And we like to stop there because it's like, well, that's what I do on Sunday. I come, gather together, I offer to God a sacrifice of my praise, the fruit of my lips, openly profess his name. But then it says, but do not forget then to do good and share with others for with such sacrifices God is pleased. It doesn't just end with lip service. It doesn't just end with us coming together and singing some songs on our lips. Good things, really good things. In fact, I hope as a church we, we even go louder and stronger in those things. But serving other people, taking the things that are on our lips, the fruit of our lips. And when we go out into our life circle and we encounter people in our work, in our school, in our neighborhoods, in our home, that we begin to speak of, what, of who God is in our life, that we share with others, that we serve other people. Part of serving on a dream team here at LifeHouse is because we have this unique opportunity to do good and share with others. It's a sacrifice for sure, but God is pleased with it. When we serve each other, not just here in the context of LifeHouse, 
but out there when we walk out those doors. I want to invite the worship team to come up and